0: in detail at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and so I ask you to open your Bibles there again. First Timothy chapter 3 is pivotal text when it comes to the discussion of elders and deacons in the Church of God. We only got halfway through that this text last week, and we're going to make an attempt to finish the first seven verses at least tonight as we pick up where we were. Paul writes there and to Timothy, he left Timothy in Ephesus, he asked him to set things in order in the church there and told him down in verse 15 that he was writing these things to him because he basically wasn't sure he was going to get there in time to instruct him verbally and so certain things Timothy needed to know and Paul recorded them for him here in, in this book, in this letter. In chapter 3, and verse 1, he writes, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. We noted last time that the terminology above reproach is sort of an umbrella term that is over this whole passage. It's a general statement about the character of a man. In fact, we noted as we were looking at these characteristics that run all the way really down to verse 13, we are talking almost exclusively about character qualities. There's only one qualification that deals really with a, with a person's aptitude or skill. That's being able to teach. But beyond that, it's really dealing with what is this life about? is this man like in the various relationships in which God has placed him? Timothy, you need to know how to evaluate someone for leadership. Leadership in the church of God is not a popularity contest. It's not something based on a person's skill level in the secular world. It's, It's not a position reserved for successful businessmen or wealthy people or or highly educated people, or noble people. It really has nothing to do with all of any of that, Timothy. It's all about what's inside a man's heart. What is he like on the inside, Timothy? And, and how does that portray itself out in the various relationships in which God has placed him? And so he says that he must be above reproach. The idea is that there can't be any hooks in his life. There's there's nothing that he can be laid hold of by. There are no dramatic flaws in his character, no general glaring weaknesses that would allow people to, to look at him and say, well, what in the world is that man doing leading the church of God? Don't they know about? Fill in the blank. He has to be above reproach, Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy. Not perfect. Not saying that a man has to reach some place of perfection. So we know that in a Christian life that's not possible, is it? We will receive perfection when we are glorified, and we will be glorified when? When Christ returns. Make him like, make us like unto him. So it's not a question of a man's perfection. It's really a question of a, of a man's direction. It's a, it's a measurement of the character of his life, the, the maturity level of his life. Is he a man on the inside that's like what he professes to be on the outside? And he needs to be examined in these various areas to, to see whether he is qualified. To see whether he's qualified. And so Timothy... Well, Paul, writing to Timothy as he begins to to detail what it means to be above reproach, lays out seven general groupings of qualifications. There's an exam that has to go on, an examination of the man's life. and The examination has to be in these seven particular specified areas. And again, as the Apostle says here in verse 15, I I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. What the Apostle is saying is that these seven specific areas of qualification that have to be examined are given by God. These are God's requirements. These are God's qualifications. You remember, man looks on the outward appearance, doesn't he? But God looks where? He looks on the heart. And so God has put these together to help us see the heart. Because we can't see into a man's heart, can we? Not really. All we can do is evaluate his life against these God-given qualifications. And if he passes the tests, then we have a, a good level of assurance of what's going on inside the heart. What this means is that no church has any right whatsoever to add to these qualifications, to add questions to the exam. Neither do they have any right to subtract any of these questions. God has prepared the exam. It is up to the church to administer it according as God has given it. So we said there are seven general groupings of qualifications that define what it means to be above reproach. We noted last time that the first area of qualification is regarding a man's fitness. A man's fitness or his suitability to the task of leadership in the church. We noted under this that, it, as it says here in verse 2, the first question of fitness involves his marital relationship. He has to be the husband of one wife. And as we labored last time, in the Greek, actually, a one-woman man. It has to do with his character and relationship to his wife. Is he a man who has eyes only for one? That's what Paul's driving at. Is he a man whose eyes and attention and heart are fixed on one woman? The woman God has given him. We noticed beyond that that the man has to be temperate, sober-minded, sound of judgment, not flighty. A man of wisdom has to be a man who is prudent, the apostle says, or thoughtful. Has to be a man who is respectable, well-behaved, disciplined in his life. And again, is this the general characteristic of his life? That's the question. So there are qualifications with regard to his fitness. Secondly, we noted that there are qualifications that have to be examined with regard to his facility, to his aptitude, to his aptitude. Again, verse 2, the man has to be hospitable. He has to demonstrate in his life Christian hospitality, the love of strangers. Is he a man who loves strangers? He has to be able to teach, the apostle says. He has to be able to teach. He has to be a man who can handle the Word of God. We noted that being able to teach implies being able to learn. He has to have something to teach. He has to be a man of the book, a man whose life is disciplined in such a way that he has made time to be a man of the book. All men face the pressures of life. All of us have been given a certain time allotment, 24 hours, amen? The most productive people and the most unproductive people in all the world have the same allotment of time. Nobody gets any more, nobody gets any less. The issue is, what do we do with what has been given to us? So to be able to be a man of the word, a man able to teach, a man of the book, requires certain sacrifice and discipline within his life that he has made significant blocks of time that he can bury his nose in the book. He has to be a teacher. He has to be a teacher. We noted that he, he has to be able to handle sound doctrine. He has to be one who can instruct the new converts in the faith which implies that he has to know what it is he's instructing them in. He has to be a man who can build up the saints to edify the saints. One who can teach the word in a way that grows the body of Christ towards maturity. He has to be a man who can refute the heretics. He has to understand doctrine at the deep enough level that when those who would come, who would contradict, who would seek to infiltrate the church and undermine the work of God within the church, the enemies of the church, he's got to be able to spot them, he's got to be able to point them out, and he's got to be able to refute them. It's not good enough to say he's wrong because he's wrong, because I say he's wrong. You have to be able to open the book. Book, chapter, verse... And pointed out. Tremendous responsibility that lies on the elders and the overseers with regard to their ability to teach. Third qualification he has to be qualified regarding his fellows or his fellow believers. He has to be qualified with regard to his fellows or his fellow believers. Notice verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious. Paul gives a contrast here. Do you see the word in verse 3, but? The word in the Greek there is Allah. It is a, a strong adversative. It points out a major contrast here. What the Apostle says is, he's not to be like this, and he names two things, but he is to be like this. As you examine his life, Timothy, you must not see this, and you must see this. How is he with regard to fellow believers? What it says. Not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. Not a drunkard in the vernacular. Not a drug addict. Not a man whose, whose life has been subverted by some chemical substance that enslaves him. What does the Apostle Paul say over in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 18? Be not filled with what? Wine, for it is dissipation. But be being filled. Keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. He must be a man whose life is not under the influence of intoxicants. Not pugnacious, he says. He can't be a pugnacious man. Not a striker, literally. Not a striker. Not a violent man. Not a quick-tempered man. Not a man who's always ready for a fight. You've met those kind before, haven't you? They're always ready to drop the gloves in a hockey analogy. They're ready to go at it. The moment's notice. That's sort of a bullying nature about them. Quick-tempered man. He's not to be like that. He's not to be like that. Beloved, there are a lot of opportunities when you are in the leadership of the church of God for your temper, for your fuse to burn Short. The people of God are a wonderful, wonderful group, but sometimes they can really aggravate you. And if you're a man who is prone to a short fuse, to a quick temper, to a, to a use of, of violence in either words or fists, you have no place in leadership in the church of God. That's not how God resolves things. It's not how God resolves things. Probably many of us, those of us who have been in, walking in the faith for a long time, can recall one or more tragic incidents in some perhaps public meeting, a business meeting, or something of a church where someone gets up and they start to scream or, or shout or threaten and, and they begin to bully other people. That kind of behavior just has no place in the church of God. And, and certainly if it's part of a man's life, it, he has no place in leadership. He's disqualified. Not a drunkard, not a striker, but what, Paul? But what? But gentle. You see the contrast? But he must be gentle. He must have an attitude of forbearance. He must be conciliatory. He must be meek, yielding, kind. He must not be the kind of man who is always pressing for every last ounce of his legal rights. Must be a man who doesn't always have to be right. Have you met those kind of people? They've always got to have it their way in the end. That kind of a person is not a gentle person, not a forbearing person. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, and verse 5, he says, Let your forbearing spirit be na- made known to all men, He's telling the Philippian church that you're to have that kind of a spirit of gentleness and forbearance. You're to have a meekness and a gentleness like Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.1. The writer of the Proverbs says it this way in Proverbs 15 in verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Boy, is that true. I can remember years ago, I was working for the bank, and I got a phone call from a guy who was just incensed with what the bank had done to him. They had messed up his loan application somehow, and he was a consumer credit guy. I worked in commercial lending; we didn't have anything to do with consumer credit. Some car loan application that had gotten messed up, and and he lost the car that he wanted to buy, and he was hot. Somehow he got our phone number out of the phone book, and. The receptionist, God bless her, put her through to me, put him through to me I mean he I just picked up the phone and said hello and and he went after me. I mean he was frustrated to max. It would have been really easy to come back at him or just click right you know not my department, but I had been sort of working through the proverbs in personal bible study and and proverb fifteen one was there for me and it it just had a gentle answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And, and so I just began to speak to him gently and, and say, you know, I'm really sorry. Boy, that really sounds like they messed you up. Let me see if I can help you. I'll see if I can find somebody who will help you. you know, this is really not my department, but I'll see if I can help them. By the end of the conversation, the guy was all cooled down. And he was, he was satisfied that finally somebody was going was gonna to help him. That's the kind of character that has to be there, somebody who is gentle, The elders of Foothill have committed themselves to unanimity in the decision-making process. That is the model by which we are trying to lead this fellowship. We've committed ourselves to that. That we will come to a unanimous decision. And if we don't come to a unanimous decision, we will not proceed forward until we do. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody sees it all the same way, particularly right up front. We have had our share of meetings where there have been sharp disagreements. But we are committed, I would say, as committed to the process as we are to the final result of an answer. And so it's important to us that we come out with a unanimous decision. And and that means there has to be a gentleness and a forbearance and and a meekness and a yielding and a conciliatory attitude among the guys. You can't always win. It it doesn't always come out your way. It's not The decisions aren't always the way that you would have made them. But if you believe that God works through a plurality of elders, godly men seeking His wisdom in prayer and and study, you are committed to that as a process, as a a biblical process, and, and you believe that that's as important for the church as any one decision that you'll ever make. I believe God has blessed us in that kind of a process. Because we have men who are diligently seeking to yield position one to another. It's a beautiful thing when it works. He has to be uncontentious, it says, verse 3. Uncontentious. He has to be peaceable, not quarrelsome. Literally adverse to fighting. Hmm? He has to be a man who doesn't want to fight, who won't fight. There is no issue over which he will fight save sin. There is no personal agenda that he will fight over. That's what the apostle is saying. Again, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 18. He says, A hot tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies. Contention. That man who's short fused, quick tempered, he will stir up strife, but the man who is slow to anger, the man who is uncontentious, peaceable, the man who is adverse to fighting, he pacifies contention. So, with regard to his fellows, the examination is not a drunkard, not a brawler, but a gentleman. Peaceable man, an uncontentious man. This is the kind of character he has to demonstrate among his, among the people and among his peers. Fourth qualification. Must be qualified with regard to his finances. Again, verse three. Must be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Life must be characterized by generosity and not greediness. It's pretty simple. There's no, there's no mystery to this. It cannot be a man who is bent on acquiring earthly treasure as the goal of his life. You've met those kind of people, haven't you? This is not a statement, by the way, about a man's personal financial statement. It really has nothing to do with it. There are plenty of people who do not have much who are very greedy. And there are plenty of people who are quite well-endowed, who are quite generous. It has to do with the attitude of the heart. It's a character measure of a man. Is his life characterized by generosity? That's the question. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus puts it this way, right? A man cannot serve two masters, right? He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and abandon the other. You cannot serve God and earthly treasure, Jesus said. Not that it's hard to serve God and earthly treasure. He said you cannot do it. So a man who is above reproach is a man who has figured out that lesson in his life and has stopped trying to do it. He is a man who is committed to Christ. And therefore, in his possessions, he is a man of generosity. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, says it this way. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. See, it's a faith question, really, when you get down to it. It's a question of, do you believe Christ will never desert you and that Christ will take care of your needs? He promised to do it. Do you believe it? And if you say you do, is it acted out in your life? And if it is, then you are a man who is free from the love of money. You're qualified with regard to your finances. Fifth qualification. He has to be qualified with regard to his family. Now, you probably figured it out by now, right? We got five Fs so far. Guess what? Yeah, I made it work. We got them all the way down the line. (laughs) Has to be qualified with regard to his family. Verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Question is, how is his performance at home? That's the question. What is he like at home? He must be one who manages his own household well. Refers to his family. What is he like? at home with his family. What is he like with his wife? What is he like with his children? And in, and in the first century, what is he like with his household help? Which I suppose would even work in the 21st century, but not for me. <laughs> but in any case, the question is, what is he like behind the doors? The word here is prohisteme. Prohistemi, it's a Greek word. It's translated here, manage. It's a commonly translated administration, or rule, or to direct, or to manage. That's the way the word is typically translated. In fact, the, the King James and the New King James translate this word, prohistomy, as the word rule. He must be one who rules his household well. Have you ever heard that translation before? He must be one who rules his household well. The New American Standard and the NIV translate it manage. He must be one who manages. His own household, well. But I think both of these translations carry with them some cultural baggage. Some cultural baggage that sort of clouds a little bit what Paul's really driving at here. Think of it this way Nero ruled Rome, Napoleon ruled France, Queen Victoria ruled England. But only God rules the church. Amen? Yeah. It's really not rule. And and when we think of the word rule, we bring with it cultural baggage. So I don't like the translation rule. I also am not too fond of the translation manage. Because I think it also carries some cultural baggage with it. Corporations with boards of directors and CEOs, manage. They manage. So let me offer to you a new translation. Lest you think I am way far out on a limb here, I spent a year in Greek class with a man, Don McDougall, and so I'm going to offer to you his translation of this word, Prohistemi, and the implications of it. We spent a year in class and... We were studying Greek exegesis, but it was really a class in pastoral theology as we went, because the man has been pastoring a church since he was 21. He's 60 years old now, and he's been teaching Greek all along as he does it. Professor McDougall notes first that the basic New Testament metaphor for the church is a family. It is a family. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 to see this. Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 19. Ephesians 2.19. By the way, don't ever miss the fact that Ephesians is written to the church at where? Ephesus. 1 Timothy is written through or to Timothy who is ministering at the church at where? Ephesus. Okay, There's a lot of overlap. To be found. Verse 19 of chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints, and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He says, We are part of God's household. We are part of God's household. And as we've already noted, back in 1 Timothy 3, he writes there in verse 15, that I'm writing this to you, Timothy, so that you know how to conduct yourself in what? The household of God. Household of God. Notice also verse 5, the parenthetical there. We'll deal with it more fully in a minute, but it says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The measurement of a man's ability to care for the church is a, is a question of how does he work in his household? How does he, how does he lead his household? And This Greek word prohistemi is, is made up of a Greek preposition pro, which means before. That's easy. There's a verb, histemi, which means to stand. And I think when you just take it back to that basic, you get a fresh view of this word. And and in the process, I think it helps to strip away some of the cultural baggage that is accumulated around what it means. To prohistemi means to stand before your own home. He must be a man who stands before his home to lead it. He must be a man who stands before his home to protect it. He must be a man who stands before his home to represent it. I like it that way. It helps me to understand a little better what it means. I don't manage my home the way I managed a lending group at Bank of America where I sat behind a desk and said, all right, you do this and you do this and you do this and this is due here and this is due then and you work late and I'll see you all tomorrow morning. Right? But that's not what it means. Nor does it mean that I am like Napoleon and I am ruling France and I tell you what you to do. That's not what it means. It means to stand before my family stand in front of my family, to protect them, to lead them, represent them. So he must be one who me his own household. Well, he's got to do a good job at this. A good job, not just an adequate job, he has to do a good job. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. Well, I'll tell you what, in the final analysis the behavior of a man's children will either make him or break him. The behavior of his children will either make him or it will break him with regard to his leadership within the church. If you fail at home, it doesn't matter what you have done on the outside. You've failed at the most basic place where, where leadership has to be demonstrated, where character has to shine forth. The Old Testament is loaded with examples, isn't it? Of great men of God who blew it at home. And their children do not walk in the faith of their fathers. Over and over again, God gives us narratives. David, Samuel, Eli. I mean, you can just name Solomon just goes on and on. You, you read through the books of the kings, you have a good king and what happens to his wretched son. That's right. It seems like a good king can never figure out how to have a well-behaved son. You blow it at home, you've blown it. it brings shame. It diminishes your ministry. It's a big deal about what it's like at home. You see, because it's at home where there are no props to help you right we can all put on our good christian faces can't we in public we can kind of hang it together with our holy vocabulary we can fool most of the people most of the time but it's when we get home and the door is closed and the windows are shut and you're tired that's when you really your character begins to reveal itself what do you like at home Keeping his children under control, it says, with all dignity. Paul is speaking here about more than simple obedience brought about by the use of the rod. There is a place for the rod in raising children. Proverbs are pretty clear about that. But the rod only works for a certain period of time, a certain length of time. You're not going to be bigger and stronger and tougher than your kids forever. By your physical presence and, and overbearing stature, you're going to be able to keep them in line perhaps for a while. But there's going to be a day when they're going to look you eye to eye. So I've come to find out that day came quickly, didn't it, William? And you've got to get their hearts. See, you've got to get their hearts. If you don't get their heart when they're young, that when they grow old, you've lost them. You've lost them. Keeping his children under control with all dignity, it says. "Hupatage" under control. The word implies submission that is embraced by the will of the child. The, The point that Paul is saying is, young children, obedience is the issue. Just flat obedience. That's what you have to see. But as they begin to mature, what you have to see is, Obedience that comes from the heart. That you have gotten their heart. And that they no longer just obey because dad's got to paddle. And if they don't, he'll take care of them. I mean, you can't paddle them forever, can you? As children grow up, their simple obedience that's brought about by the threat of punishment has to be replaced by a willing desire to conform and to submit to their father's desires. That's what has to happen. There has to be a transference that goes on. You are God to them when they are young. You represent God to them. But as they grow, you must transfer that allegiance from you to God Almighty. It has to happen. As Paul says here, keeping... His children under control with all dignity. This is a, a present middle participle. What do you care? The point of it all is that it indicates an ongoing action, which I think implies, rightly, that we're talking about children that are at home. Talking about children within the household. He knows how to, how to prohisteme his own household well, keeping those children within the household under control with all dignity. Whose dignity? I think the answer is pretty simple. Whose character is being evaluated here? It's his, isn't it? The children are incidental. They are part of the test. We are not evaluating the children directly. We are using the children to evaluate the man. The dignity in view is the father's dignity. All the other characteristics in this whole section apply to him. What we're measuring is the father's leadership skills within his household in relation to his children. It's a relationship that should be characterized by dignity. It should not be heavy-handed, provoking his children to anger, Ephesians 6.4, right? Fathers do not what? Provoke your children to anger. How do you provoke your children to anger? You do it with a heavy-handedness, with an uneven application of the rules. Where wrong is not always wrong and right is not always right. Where it it depends on your mood or whether you're tired or stressed or or whatever. There's just an unevenness about it. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, you're not to exasperate your children. How do you exasperate a child? Do it by nitpicking him. Right? Never right. never good enough. No praise, just criticism. Dignity, the apostle says. Hupatage, keeping his children in submission with dignity. The church is a family. And a man finds his qualifications to lead that family forged in the family of his biological family. I didn't say that well at all, but there's a microcosm of a biological family, and and as he leads there, that demonstrates to the world his qualifications to lead on a bigger level, the household of God. Paul's talking here about patriarchal leadership. Boy, you want to find a word that will get you in trouble today. (laughs) The word is patriarchal, because it's got all kinds of bad connotations. But see, there are good connotations, too. There are biblical connotations for what it means to be patriarchal, to be in leadership of your home. And then to be a patriarch of the church, to be in leadership of the family of God. Luke chapter 19 and verse 17 says it this way: "He who is faithful in a little thing will be faithful in what? In much." A man who is not faithful at home won't be faithful in the church. Now, what we need to do is turn to the right here and take a look at Titus for a minute. I really debated as we were putting this series together of dealing with 1 Timothy 3 alone and then Titus 1 alone, and I decided to put them together on well, marrying the two passages and trying to deal with them simultaneously because there is a lot of Crossover. But in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, An overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. That kind of sounds the same, doesn't it? Not fond of sordid gain. What I really wanted was verse 6. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, here it is, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So what about Titus 1.6? Is it enough for a man to have his family in hupotage, in submission, under control? Or is there an additional requirement that his children must be believers? That's the question. Is Paul requiring the children of an elder, regardless of their age, to be believers before they are qualified to be an elder? Some hold that position. I think we have to deal with the text. Well, let's look here. Notice he says having children. Having, again, is another present participle. Indicates ongoing action. Indicates children at home. Indicates children at home. So it seems what Paul is writing to Titus here is that a man whose children are at home have to believe. At least that's the way it's translated here. Having children who believe. Pista is the word. It is an adjective. It could be translated believing or faithful. And it's legitimately translated in both both ways. Either faithful or believing. The word is used as a general term for all Christians. For example, take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse two it says, "Let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful for them." It's a, a general term referring to Christians, right? First Timothy six two. Let those who have believers—the word is pista—it's also used in Second Timothy. Take a look at that, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a general term referring to Christians. It also refers to a quality that is shown by Christians. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says there, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Okay. Look at chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 11. The adjective appears there too. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So the word can be translated, legitimately translated believing. It can be legitimately translated faithful. So what in Titus 1.6 is Paul requiring of the children of elders? I mean, grammatically, it can be translated either way. It could be that he is requiring them to have believing children, Christian children. Or it could be that he is requiring them to have children who are faithful to their father's leadership. Both ideas can legitimately and grammatically be brought out of this phrase. Paul also says, notice, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Some, taking this additional modifier and adding on the statements over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, put it together and say that the issue that the Apostle is really driving at here is is that the children of an elder have to be children that are well-behaved, well-ordered, sort of faithful to their father's leadership, is the idea. Others say no, no dissipation and rebellion are characteristics of unbelief. And so what he's saying is that the children of an elder have to be Believers. Now, it would seem to me that dogmatism here is difficult. This is a hard verse to, to pound the pulpit over and say it's got to be this way. And sometimes there are straw men that are put forward by one side or the other. They'll They'll put forward a question like this, for example. What about an obedient but unregenerate son? Is that okay? Does that qualify? Or someone else will say, well, what about a believing son who is disobedient? Is that okay? You see, but they're really, when they're doing that, they're, they're, those are really strong men. That's, that's not a right way to ask the question. Others' influence in their life. As a young child, that would manifest itself in submission and obedience to the father's directives. But as the child grows, and with his growth, his physical growth, is a growth in an understanding of the gospel as his father ju- does the work of teaching in the home and discipling his children, we would expect the father's influence to show itself in a spiritual reality within the lives of the children. I think the point that the apostle is again trying to make is he, he is looking at the character of the man. That's what he's after, the character of the man. And, and what he's what he's trying to to cause us to do is to say, what kind of a shepherd is this man at home? What kind of a shepherd is he at home? Is he fulfilling his role at home as a shepherd? Is he leading? Is he teaching? Is he evangelizing? Is he nurturing his children? In the actual age that a child of an elder commits his life to Christ is dependent upon whom? God. And God alone. It is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in that child's life, and it happens at different ages for different children. I think that if for some reason a child were to grow up in the home of a man and would appear to be walking in the faith and then once out of the father's house, sort of throw it all away and reject it, I think you'd have to take and pause and ask yourself the question, what kind of influence did the man have? I think you'd have to ask that question. I don't know that it would necessarily disqualify him. I don't think it's that clear here. But I do think it causes us to pause and to consider such things. Remember again, the Apostle is not setting a standard of perfection, is he? He's defining what it means to be above reproach. Children behave differently. We have four. We have seen that to be true. There are some children who are very outwardly compliant. But inside, they're little sin sick hearts. They're rebellious. They just manifest it in different ways. There are other children. who are more difficult. who are more strong-willed. Some are a little more flighty and less serious than others. Maybe spiritual things aren't yet important to them. Children are individuals. They don't own a cookie-cutter. I think we need to give each other some room here, some space, a little bit of wobble room. Hmm? Instead of criticizing, we should pray, people's children. I think there are two ditches here. Two ditches, either side of the road. I think one ditch is harshness, sort of a judgmental attitude towards a man's children. And and saying that his children don't behave like I think they ought to behave, and he's not qualified to be an elder anymore, or ever. I'd say that's the harshness ditch. We need to avoid that. There's a laxity ditch on the other side of the road, which says, you know, the elder's kids are the worst kids in the church. You've, heard, you've kind of heard that before, haven't you? Pastor's kids, they're the worst ones. That's the laxity ditch. We don't belong there either. There's a, there's, a, there's a road here in the middle. Wisdom requires that we walk in the middle. Back to 1 Timothy 3. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This is a rhetorical question. It's just a rhetorical question. It's sort of the answer is self-apparent, isn't it? What is the answer to the question? He can't. He can't. He can't influence this small group with whom he spends all this time and energy. How in the world is he going to influence a greater family of God, of people with whom he has a relationship that is nowhere near as deep? I mean, this is, this is wisdom that is common. I remember as a child, my father commenting one time on a, on a man who was running for selectman in the little town where I grew up. And he said, how in the world can that guy in leadership in this town when his kids are running wild all over the place. My father's not even a believer and he can figure that out. It's just common knowledge. That's what the apostle's saying. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, a man does not know how to prohistemi, same word, his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's a very intensive Greek verb used here. To take care of, to look after. It's used in only one other place in the New Testament. It's really fascinating. So I think if we if we find that other place where that verb is used, it it elaborates for us what it means to take care of the church of God. That intensive Greek verb is used over in Luke chapter ten and verse thirty five. Don't turn there. We're out of time. I got more to say. So I'm just going to tell you what it is. The context of Luke ten thirty five is the context of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. And it describes the care that he gave to the wounded man. That's what it means to care for the church of God. To give to the church of God the same level of care that that good Samaritan gave to that wounded man. What kind of care did he give? He extended himself, didn't he? Of his time and his treasures. cared for the man. If a man doesn't know how to his day may be for his own house if he doesn't know how to care for his own house and presumably he cares for his own wife and children immensely they're flesh of his flesh well, how in the world is he ever going to care for the church of God it's important as we interview people as potential elders in this church that we probe deeply these issues just as a footnote here If a man does not know, do you see that? Verse 5. My footnote is, fathering is a skill that can be learned. It is a skill that can be learned. We're not born good fathers. We learn to be good fathers. That should hold great comfort and promise for all men. This is a skill that can be acquired. Sixth qualification. Regarding his faith. It has to be examined with regard to his faith. Verse six. And not a new convert. Lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not a new convert. Not newly planted. The Greek word here that comes across new convert is also gives us the English word neophyte. He can't be a neophyte in the faith. Paul's writing here to the church at Ephesus. This church is at least 10 years old, the time Paul's writing here. It's an interesting observation that in Titus, he doesn't make this same qualification. He doesn't talk about him not being uh, newly planted over in Titus. It's also interesting, and it's worth turning. Go go with me to uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. I'll just show you something there. This is the end of the first missionary journey, which lasted about 18 months. Paul and Barnabas are returning now to the circuit of the places where they stopped and had evangelistic encounters and planted churches. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them uh, to the Lord in whom they had believed these churches were brand new yet they were already appointing elders within them now i know i understand these were these were people coming out of judaism so they had a tremendous background in the old testament and i'll grant you all of that but the point of the matter is they were new to christianity they were new to christianity and over in titus there is no requirement here and i think the point is that there is flexibility There is flexibility depending upon the circumstances. What does it mean to be a new convert has a different answer depending on the context in which a person finds themselves. The older and the more established a church, particularly in terms of its doctrinal maturity, the older and the more established its elders must be. That's kind of simple reasoning, isn't it? Not a new convert, he says. Gives us two reasons here. Lest he become conceited, fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The point is an immature man thrust into positions of leadership, prone to conceit. Become becomes swollen with pride. He can become enamored with the power, the authority, the prestige of the office. Lest he become conceited. That's his first reason. Second reason, he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil or incurred by the devil. A novice falls under pride. And in that process, he his life is open to the influence of Satan himself. Bring condemnation into his life. We need to be wise in these things. I remember years ago, another church in Dallas where we were, there was we got to that church and there was a novice serving with the elders. He had come to faith. He was a very successful businessman. He was very articulate, public good public speaker. He came to faith and within. A year and a half, they had him serving on the elder board. But things got tough. His feelings got hurt, and he left. Not only left the elder board, he left the church. And within a year, he had left all churches. He dropped out of Christianity altogether. Dangerous, dangerous, Paul says. Seventh and final, to be qualified with regard to his fame. F A M E, fame. That's why thesauruses are good, Vincent. The point is his reputation has to hold. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Notice again the Greek verb, day, translated must. He must have a good reputation. Paul says. He not only has to pass muster inside the church, he he has to pass muster outside the church, amongst the unbelieving world. He has to have a good reputation with everybody else that's looking at his life. Why? Two reasons again. So he doesn't fall into reproach, he says. When a church leader falls, he, he disgraces not only himself, but the church. And Christ Himself. So has to be a good reputation on the outside. When the outside world hears that a, that a man serves as an elder in a church, they shouldn't be going, well, I don't understand that. You should see him at the office. He's Lazy. You know, I caught him stealing pencils. or You know, whatever it is. Cheating on his expense account. I mean, that should not be what his character is. It should be impeccable. I'm going to share with you in the weeks to come here, uh, we spent a long time this last year and a half putting together an application process for future elders here at Foothill, trying to take seriously what the text says and, and really begin to examine these areas of a man's life. And, and part of that is we are now asking people for references before, they, before we ask them to come and serve with us together. We want to know what their outside world says about them. We want to know what their boss has to say about them. So we're sending out reference checks. So it doesn't fall into reproach in the snare of the devil, the trap or the, or the snare set by the devil, laid by the devil. I don't have time there, but you can just scribble in 2 Timothy 2.26. I mean, reputation is everything. Reputation has to be good within the church, has to be good within the home, has to be good within the community. Total package above reproach. So when a man is examined for the office of overseer of the church, he has to be examined in regard to his fitness, in regard to his facility, regard to his fellow believers, in regard to his finances, in regard to his family, in regard to his faith, and in regard to his fame. And if he passes the test, you found a leader. He found a leader. I don't know if I've worn you out yet or not, but I told you last time I'd try to take a few questions, so maybe we'll just watch on the clock here, take one or two questions, if you have any, if you don't, great, we'll, uh, I'll pray and we'll sing, Greg, and then we can all go home, but if you have a question about anything that's been said over the last couple of weeks and you'd like to maybe something to clarify, go ahead, Simon. Uh uh-huh. in about a hmm of the a man children leadership, how you so much that in his life? Okay. The question is, I think I understand it is what if a man doesn't have children? Have you missed that You've sort of missed on an opportunity to examine that part of his life. Is that your question? Well, I think the answer is that that generally speaking, people have children. And so the apostle is laying out these qualifications because, again, generally speaking, people get married and they have children. and So it's a part of a man's life, particularly the part of a life of a man who has matured some. And so Paul's telling you how to handle that. He's not, again, he's he's not giving us a requirement that he's got to have children. He's just saying, if he does, and I'll assume that he does, this is how it has to be. Okay? Question? Is there another one? Okay. I'm not looking to twist your arms, so... Let me pray for a minute here. God, our Father, what a... What a loaded section of Scripture... Our Father, you have given us some very clear qualifications. To neglect them would be sin, and we would do so at our own peril. Lord God, I pray for this fellowship, this household of God here, that you would enable us by faith to take seriously these requirements and to implement them fully, unashamedly, without any timidity at all. Our Father, as we consider men for leadership within this fellowship, let all of us be willing to ask the hard questions and and let the men who are being considered be open and candid and willing to have their lives examined. Lord God, you have called those in leadership of your church to a very public lifestyle. With leadership goes a diminishment of privacy because, Lord God, you have put these men on display as examples and models for those who are young in the faith that they might look to them and, and see what it means to walk in maturity. Our Father, I pray that you would raise up within this congregation many men who would aspire to the office of overseer, that you would put it on their hearts to make the hard choices and the difficult sacrifices necessary to serve the people of God in this way. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.